and welcome to Success Stories. I'm Kendra Hall, Chief Storytelling Officer at Success Magazine, and this is the podcast where we sit down with the brightest stars and the boldest thought leaders as they share their stories so you can create your own success story. And I am so excited for you to hear from today's guest. And what I really took away from her story was the beauty of patience. I don't know if that's what she intended, but as an impatient overachiever, though I understand success doesn't happen overnight, I have always kind of tried to rush it. This story changed everything for me. It gave me permission to settle into the process a little more and what a difference. If you're someone who in your head knows there's no such thing as an overnight success but in your heart still gets frustrated and tries to hurry things along, this story is for you. Let's get to it. Today's success story is Susan Kane. Susan Kane is the leading voice on successfully navigating the world as an introvert. Through her speaking and her website, Quiet Revolution, she is on a mission to unlock the power of introverts for the benefit of us all. Princeton and Harvard educated, Susan began her career as a lawyer and later founded a negotiation consultancy before she became an author, most famously of 2012's Quiet, the power of introverts in a world that can't stop talking. Susan, welcome to Success. I'm so excited to hear your story. Thank you so much. It's so great to be here with you, Kendra. Well, I have to tell you, um, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but I did take the quiz to see if I was an introvert or an extrovert. I was pretty sure that I was an introvert somewhere in there, but no, it came back 100% extrovert. So I will, I will just warn you of that in advance. <laughs> well, no warning needed. People always say um, things, well, I, I should say extroverts often say <laughs> things like that to me. And I'm always like, oh, that's the last thing you should be saying because introverts and extroverts tend to get along so well um, as friends and as colleagues and also as romantic partners. So the last thing you should be doing is um, an apology. Well, I feel like, I feel like we, I feel like we make a good pair. So, so I feel good about it. And actually I have to tell you. Absolutely. And we were uh, chatting before, before we started the official podcast and I felt like we could have just chatted. I think they were wait. They were like, "Hey, we need to push record on this uh, at some point. The podcast has to commence." And and I do think I think you're right. I um well, I know you're right. And in fact, as I was getting ready for this, I turned on your now infamous uh, TED talk, and I was watching it at home with my son. I turned it on, and then my son came into the living room, and I was going to turn it off because it was on the only TV we had. And instead, I thought to myself, "He's nine. I thought." he might need to see this. So we were sitting on the couch watching your TED talk and he said, mama, mama, what's that word she keeps saying? In, 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 invert. <laughs> and I'm like, introvert. And he said, mama, I think that's what I am. Um, mm. And it was just such a, wow. uh, it was such a beautiful moment. Um, wow. I just got goosebumps. That's yeah. incredibly cool. And would you have known, like, would you have described him as an introvert before that? I wouldn't have used that word, but now knowing what I know, it, it makes so much 
sense, just listening to some of your previous interviews and and reading through some of Quiet, it, it only took a couple a couple minutes for me to realize that there's a really beautiful, powerful being in him being an introvert. And I felt even just a little bit more capable of mothering him better now knowing that. Um, so thank you. Yeah, absolutely. That's such a great story. And you should know, by the way, I, I actually wrote a version of Quiet that's exactly for kids his age. It's for tweens. So um, if he's interested. What is, is that? It's, it's called Quiet Power. I just, I saw that and I wondered, I wasn't exactly sure what it was, but that, see, I, I'm telling you, this is, this is going to be very, val- thank you for this. <laughs> I'm taking notes. <laughs> so we welcome. haven't even gotten into it. So Susan, I have a, I have a question for you. I mean, we can, your name and your, what you've done, you've created, you've truly created a revolution for people since the book was launched to to have a a way to describe themselves to to proudly describe themselves and as you said to have introverts and extroverts and and people come together right now it looks really obvious that this was exactly what you were meant to do like this was like you were meant to write this book to start the quiet revolution to be a keynote speaker to spend 7 years on the new york times bestseller list was it always obvious to you was this always going to be your plan um well a little bit of yes and a little bit of no um so the yes part is that i wanted to be a writer from the time I was four years old. And like, I had a really distinct vision of that. Um, I grew up in a family culture where books were everything and writers were revered. And, um, you know, I talked a little in my TED talk about my grandfather who I adored and he had a, an apartment that was my favorite place in the world. And it was filled with books and I would go there. So you know, that was really like the culture from which I came and and the dreams that I had. But um, I really kind of forgot about those dreams along the way uh, for all different kinds of reasons. I ended up going to law school and then practicing Wall Street Law for almost 10 years. And so it wasn't until I was in my early 30s that I started that I left law and started writing again um and and I think of myself really not so much as having been destined to write about introverts although that's part of it but really uh ultimately like destined to write in general you know like right now I'm 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 actually working on a book on a completely different topic and I spend my days incredibly happily just writing it's my favorite thing to do other than hanging out with my family. So, um, so yeah, you know, there's this gigantic detour along the way where I forgot about writing and thought of it as a, of something that had been a childhood dream, but not really realistic. And of course you have to go and make a living and that's not really a way that you can do it. And, you know, all those things that people think with their creative dreams, I thought all those things too. So, um, and I thought them for 10 years. So I, I, you know, it's interesting because I had a similar experience, a thing that I loved doing as a child, which was telling stories, which is why this is such a 
joy mm. for me to be here right now. Um, I told stories. I told stories for fun. I told stories for competition. And then I grew up and thought, well, I can't do that anymore. <laughs> like, that's not serious. That's not going to. And so I, you know, took that detour. And I think that that, I think that that is a more common story than not. And so I'd love to hear just yeah. to take a moment here to hear about what, like, what is, what do you remember about, you said that you knew you loved to write when you were four years old. I want to know where did you write? Like, where was it in a, was it in a diary? Was it in what were you writing? Tell me about four-year-old Susan, the writer. Oh gosh. I mean, it was everything. I would take, uh, you know, back then I would take um, uh, three pieces of loose leaf paper and staple them together to make a, what I thought was a book. Um, you know, there was one story, my mom happens to have saved it. So that's why I know the name of it. And it was called Peggy meets Eggy, you know, so <laughs> four-year-old stories. <laughs> and, um, and then when I was a little older, I started a magazine and I sold subscriptions to it to my family members and there was there were two magazines one was called rags and one was called rabbit and um yeah I just did all different kinds of projects like that and but it was it was also it wasn't only the actual writing I was doing it was also there was something about the writer's life that Mm felt like such a strong sense of destiny. Um, you know, I remember sitting in my family uh, den with a scrapbook and we had a subscription to the New Yorker magazine and I took this stack of New Yorkers and cut out cartoons and, um, and headlines and phrases and things that I liked and I put them in a scrapbook. It was, just, and it was almost like I was creating a vision of, of the life I wanted to have. It was extremely distinct. Um, yeah. So what and do then, you, th- um, oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I, you know, and uh, then I went to college and, um, I mean, there were a whole bunch of different things I think that got me off this track, but, and I talked about some of it in my Ted talk, you know, just the kind of cultural imperative to you know, go out and do the, yeah. the sort of dominant type of thing um but it wasn't only that you know it was also I took creative writing classes in college and uh and the classes I happened to take were in fiction writing Mm. which turns out really not to be my thing but I didn't understand that then I just thought oh I like this but I don't like it that much I'm good at this but I'm not really that good at it and I guess that dream was just a childhood dream you know, and that was happening right at the same time that my parent and my father, you know, took me aside and said, well, it's a nice romantic dream to be a writer, but you have to be able to support yourself and it won't be so romantic when you're older and you can't pay the bills. And, you know, the, the things uh, that everybody hears. Yeah. Um, you know, he had grown up in the depression and that was very real. Um, and uh yeah, and, and it, you know, it all kind of came, and, and so all all those different forces kind of came together, and I found myself applying to law school and and really enjoying it. You know, it was this, I don't know, I guess if you count the law school years, it was an almost 15-year detour that was really enjoy, I enjoyed. It was absorbing, and it was interesting, but it was also really not me at all. Mm. Um, it was more like just this interesting country that I was visiting. 
without actually be- belonging there. Do you do you remember some moments in that time where, where because I think it's easy, right? As you're and plus you've invested all that time in it, all that money, all that energy into pursuing it, that path. And I think it's easy then to to try to when you have those moments, when you're thinking to yourself, I'm just visiting this country. I don't know if this is the right place for me. And you're like, no, no, this is where I'm supposed to be. I know. Do you remember any of those moments of incongruence where, where it was, where it was there? Like, wait, I don't, this is, I'm fine, but I don't think this is it for me. Do you remember any of those whispers, those moments? Yeah, there were a bunch of them, but um, probably the biggest one was about three or four years into actually practicing law. Um, I used to go there. I, I used to live in Greenwich Village in Manhattan, and um, I lived across the street from this Barnes & Noble. And I would often go there. Like, I, I wouldn't get home from work, you know, till like 9 p.m. or something. Mm. Um, but it was open late, and, uh, and I'd go over there. And I found this book, and it was called Do What You Are. And, um, and it was a book that that had you take the Myers-Briggs personality test as a way of understanding more about yourself. But then it also helped you map your personality style onto the ideal careers for you. And my type was an INFP, um, which, you know, for any Myers-Briggs aficionados out there, they'll know what that means. But but anyway, they're nodding right now. They're nodding. (laughs) <laughs> like, oh yeah, I know what that is. <laughs> um, but the careers that it mapped onto were, it was a list that was like writer, um, social worker, psychologist, clergy person. Uh, it was kind of like that. And, and I looked at that list and I recognized myself so yeah. intimate, intimately. And it was, and it was one of those epiphany moments of like, okay, that's why I'm not really in the right place. You know, like the list for lawyers was some other type, like some other section of the book. <laughs> you were like, wait, and lawyer. No, wait, it, it must be. <laughs> so tell me, yeah, tell me what, then, yeah. Oh, sorry, I'll, I'll just tell you one more tidbit, which is, you know, I told you my dad had grown up in, in the depression and that had informed my ultimate decision to go to law school. And so I started studying more about these personality types. And I found that the one that I had um, was the, as a group was the lowest paid of all the 16 oh. different types, oh, because no. you know, that, that list of professions yeah. I just read off to you, it's not the most uh, lucrative. And, and I didn't really care about material things so much, but it was really important to me to be able to right. support myself. Yep. And so I thought, okay, this is interesting. What do I do with this? Um, and it was just there in the back of my mind and I went back to my law firm, but I kept thinking about it all. So did you, so I'm, I'm picturing you as you're telling this story at Barnes and Noble, making me realize how much I miss Barnes and Noble. Um, it's the the season where where we are recording this and we're still in the thick of the pandemic. But so you're at Barnes and Noble. Did you, and this is going to be a silly question. Did you buy this book and bring it home with you or did you just read it page through it and then just leave it there I'm, I'm picturing you like reading it and then and then buying it and then walking home with this like secret in your purse or in your hand oh yeah no I totally bought the book I, I'm sure I still have it and yeah. um, for months afterwards like it was 
far from a secret. I was making all my friends take the Myers-Briggs test. Oh, really? I, I felt like, yeah, I thought it was, it was this incredibly illuminating thing. Um, yeah, not just to understand me, but everybody. Yeah. I still feel that way. I, you know, academics hate Myers-Briggs. Mo- most companies use, use it um, mm. to help employees understand themselves and each other. Most academics dislike it and feel that it's not scientifically valid, but I just find practice. It's incredibly useful. So yeah, it works. I I remember taking it in high school and all I can remember about which one I was, it was, it started with a big fat E. So there you go. We're, we're right back where we started. (laughs) So tell me then you, and I love this. I, I love this moment. I love picturing you late at Barnes and Noble having this epiphany because I, I just think it's important to bring up that epiphanies happen in these kind of small moments. Like you didn't go to the bookstore thinking that your life was going to make more sense that day. Um, so I love that you, I love that you right. shared that with us, but I yeah, also know happen. that you didn't, it, it, you didn't read that and suddenly say, okay, I'm quitting. I am now going to become a writer. There's, there's a different story um, where your path took a different direction. Can you, Tell me a little, can you tell me that story? Yeah, so I kept practicing law and, um, you know, even though I had these doubts, I still was a pretty, I still was pretty ambitious about it and mm-hmm. pretty engaged in it. And I really liked the firm where I practiced. It was just um, culturally and personality wise, a really good fit for me. So I was happy there in a lot of ways. Um, so I kept doing it. And, um, you know, and then and then came a year that I was up for partner and learned that I wasn't going to make partner. I, I I don't know. It wasn't clear. Was I ever going to make it? Was I never going to make it? I don't know. Right. But anyway, they came and told me that. And um, I told myself, like, I was really upset. But I then asked for a leave of absence. And I left the firm that very afternoon I left wow. literally like three hours later um, and I never went back I mean I, I was officially on a leave of absence which is actually key because um well I'll, I'll tell you why it was key later yeah. but anyway okay. I I never went back I I thought I thought that I would you know during this leave of absence just travel and chill out a little because I had been working this crazy 90-hour work week yeah. for so long um but I found myself uh, about a week later signing up for a class in creative nonfiction writing at NYU. And it wasn't like the whole, like all those years that I'd been practicing law, it wasn't like the whole time I was thinking, oh, if only I were writing. Like I really wasn't yeah. thinking about writing. Yep. Um, it was more that the moment I had mental space for it, writing was what came to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you're talking about epiphanies. I, I, I showed up for that class a week later um, and I sat in that classroom on the very first night of class. And that really was like epiphany number two of like, mm-hmm. I, I remember so distinctly where I was sitting and thinking, okay, I found my home. This is where I'm supposed yeah. to be. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. I will never be able to make a living at this, but I'm organizing my whole life around it. You know, it'll be my hobby. Yeah, um, but this is what I want to do. Where were you sitting? I want to. Were you in the back? Were you in the front? <laughs> I want to. I'm kind of hor- <laughs> I'm picturing you know, it. Like, um, 
12 people in the class and and in a horseshoe shape and I was right in the middle of the horseshoe and that class we all gelled together really well and so we actually many of us in the class stayed together as a writers group for maybe four or five years after Um, and that was incredibly powerful and supportive to have that that um, community at that time. I mean, it, it was just, and, and such an important distinction too, because you don't, and I, and I think that's, it's okay to not get it right the first time. You know, when you took the writing classes in college, it was fiction and, you know, and fiction wasn't your thing. And then here you go back and the next class you take is creative nonfiction, huge distinction. And, you know, the, the shoe fit. So Yeah, that's an, I know, I know, you know, like when I was a kid and in college still, I kind of thought, well, there's two kinds of writing, there's Mm -hmm. fiction and there's journalism. And even now, if you ask me, I would say, nope, I'm not a journalist. I'm not a fiction writer. Nope, doesn't fit. Uh, I just didn't know there was such a thing as creative nonfiction. So you mentioned that there was, and maybe you're, maybe you have another time that you'll share this, but that it was important that it was just a leave of absence from your job. Yeah. Okay. This is really important because I believe that in our culture, especially our business culture, there is a myth that if you have a dream, you should go after that dream. Mm. You should take all the risks you need to take. And in fact, the more risks you take, the more it demonstrates the strength of that dream and the Mm -hmm. strength of your destiny to follow that path. And I think that does people a huge disservice because we all actually do want to pay the rent and support our families and do what we have to do. Um, and, and I don't believe creativity flourishes when you're stressed about those kinds of things. Right. I believe it flourishes when you're more mentally free. So for me, calling my departure a leave of absence as opposed to I'm quitting and I have no idea what happens next was a huge emotional distinction, even though, you know, deep down, I knew I probably wasn't going back. Um, The fact that I could gave me enormous uh, emotional power. And so I always tell people, you know, who have a creative dream and, and they're scared about it, maybe that the first thing is to think about, okay, what's my backup plan or what's my day job or whatever. First, figure that out. Once you do that, now the world is free ahead of you because like I said to myself with my writing, I may not publish, I probably won't publish anything until I'm 75. <laughs> that, was, that was my pact with myself. And, and I wasn't doing it because I had to make a living from it. I was just doing it because it's what I wanted and it, yeah. it made the whole thing feel more free. I don't think people say that enough. I, I, I am so glad that, that you shared that because it's, tr- it's true. And I think we've, you know, as I mentioned, we're in the, still in a pandemic state and there's been so much disruption and yeah, so much, I mean, we were, it's been plan A for, we've had the wind at our backs and the, our, you know, like people have just been flying along um, with very little, you know, like it's, it's, it's been pretty smooth sailing in many ways. And then I don't think, I mean, if you were ever questioning the importance of plan B before. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You 
And, and you're right. You can't create, you can't pursue, you can't when you're in that stressed state. So I love, I think there is, I think it's so true that if, if you have a dream, it's okay to be responsible with that dream. And it doesn't mean that you, that you aren't fully committed. It doesn't, I, I love that you said that. I think that that is, that's so very important. Okay. So oh, I yeah, do, thank you. I do have, I'll, I'll, sorry, I'll just ahead. say one more thing yeah, about that, yeah, which please. is, I, I actually think it's like, it's actually a reflection of our cultural, you know, I call it the extrovert ideal, but it's a reflection of our extrovert ideal that there is all this pressure to, you know, if you have a dream, follow it in the riskiest way possible, because we, we really as a culture lionize that kind of risk-taking mentality, which works for some people. You know, there are some people whose creative dream, I suppose, would be enhanced by the adrenaline of kind of walking on a tightrope. Mm-hmm. And those stories get lionized in our media and so on. Um, but then there's a lot of people where that doesn't work for them. So you kind of have to know who you are and, and build your own version of a creative life. Well, and to know that it isn't you as you're watching other people's stories and, and they're being celebrated for these huge risks. So you don't necessarily always know the whole story. So in our, in our family, True. We lived in Phoenix for a long time. We had our kids there. That's where we made our home. And then definitely felt this calling, this, um, I can't really put my finger on it, what it was, but that we should move to New York City. We didn't know anybody. Uh, We didn't have any reason to accept that. It felt like the right thing to do. And I could just tell Mm -hmm. that story. And so then we uprooted our family and our two kids and we went from living in Arizona to living in an apartment on the Upper East Side. But the reality is, and yeah, it was it was a sudden decision, yes, but we had backup on backup on backup. We had if what what's the worst case, what's the worst case scenario that this doesn't work? Well, we had a home that we could go back to, we didn't sell. Like there was so much planning and agonizing and and making sure that there was a net there so that as we took this leap and we fell, we could be caught. And I don't think, and now I don't think that I shared that part of that story enough uh, because it would be really easy to think that we were just like, oh, okay, let's go. Let's move via American Airlines. And now we live in New York. Like there was so much more, <laughs> yeah, yeah, so much yeah. more. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I know it's not as glamorous a part of the story and it's sort of not part of the natural storytelling beat. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, if you're somebody who is really seriously thinking of, you know, how do I follow this creative dream? I just feel like it's a disservice not to tell that part of the story. Yeah. So. So one part of your story that I myself as a writer found really inspiring and it just meant a lot to me. It was one of those where I was like, I could take a deep breath, um, is the way that you talk about your writing and, um, that you weren't thinking you were going to get published until you were 75, but how how long it took you to write this masterpiece. Can you tell us um, if, if there's any of those moments in those, because what was it, seven years to write Quiet? Yeah, and before that, like if you date it from the time that I sat there in that creative nonfiction class, um, I actually spent the next few years after that class experimenting with writing. Um, I wrote a memoir in 
in sonnet form and in prose form. And I um, did a playwriting workshop and wrote a play and um, I was writing essays. I did all this different stuff. Um, And I never published any of that. And it really wasn't for a few years until I came to the idea of quiet. And I thought, okay, this one, I am going to try to publish. Um, And even then though, I still thought I was working on this kind of idiosyncratic project that not many people would be interested in. I didn't really grasp at first um, what a nerve it was going to strike. Yeah. But uh, like I started to have inklings of it because I, I put together a proposal and found my amazing agent and, and we pitched the proposal to all the publishing houses and there was this crazy auction. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Like they all, they all sort of went nuts. So that was a, a dream come true moment. Um, but then, so so I got a nice advance for the book and I set off to go write it based on this proposal that I had done. Um, and then I realized that I had no idea how to write an actual book. Like I'd never written anything really longer than an essay. Um, <laughs> well, come on, you had so, that, that Peg and Meg or what was it? Peg and, oh, Peggy and Eggie. Peggy yeah, and Eggie. Peggy don't, Peggy. I mean, yeah. don't forget Peggy and Eggie. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, and I had written like the memoir and stuff, but that, you know, that's different from a long sustained argument that still has to be interesting and and touch people and all this stuff. So, um, so yeah, I I went and I wrote a first draft that took like two years or something. And, um, and my editor told me that it was terrible and I knew it was terrible. And, um, and she, yeah, yeah. And she said, you should go back and start from scratch and take all the time you need. And I was actually completely thrilled by that because I knew that I could get it right. I just, or at least I, well, I thought there was, I thought there was a real chance that I could get it right, but I knew I needed a ton of time to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was actually thrilled that she was giving me that time because many publishing houses would not do that. They, they wouldn't want you to take quite so long and they would just be like, okay, let's just get it out. Yeah. I'm Um, shocked by that. I am, I am, but what a beautiful, I mean, they knew, they knew how important the project was and clearly they they didn't know that I'd be able to pull it off ultimately. So like, I I really, um, I'll be grateful forever that they did that, you know, because, it really wasn't clear. And in fact, I, I, I keep meaning to do this. I haven't yet, but um, this other editor involved with the process wrote me a long two or three page single space letter of everything that was wrong and how I had to switch gears and what I needed to do to get it right. Um, and I really want to publish that letter just to show people what the process is actually like. Like, you know, it's not, it's not like you necessarily hit it out of the park the first time and that's totally okay. Yeah. Please publish that letter. I will. <laughs> I want to read at least email it to me so we can. No, but but you're right like that. So do you remember? Do you remember a few of those setbacks? Like what are, do you remember any setbacks? So I'm going to ask two questions. One, any setback oh. moments um, where you were like, oh man, this is harder than I thought. And then also a moment when you one of those moments, and again, I'm, we have—I'm sure there's many along your journey where you were like, "Yes, I did. This is happening. I, this is happening. I'm here. This is—I. 
this is a pr- one of your proudest moments, I suppose. So two questions. You get to choose which is first. <laughs> um, well, let's see. I mean, I guess that, you know, the next sort of big moment was the proud one of like actually finishing the book and realizing that it actually worked and, you know, that I was getting all that feedback that it worked. Yeah. Um, but it was like, no sooner was that happening that now I had this huge other hurdle, which was that at the time I was extremely terrified of public speaking. Mm -hmm. And I knew that if I was going to promote this book that I cared about so deeply, that the only way to do it was a public person. Mm -hmm. And I don't just mean like, I didn't like public speaking. I mean, I was flat out terrified, like throw up before you give a speech, (laughs) you know, terrified of it. Um, And and somehow, uh, Ted invited me to give a, a talk about my book, and the, the, that talk was happened like right around the time of publication day, okay. maybe a month later or something. Um, so, like the book was coming out into the world, and that was really amazing. But you know, suddenly I was this public person, and on the first day it came out, I gave like seventeen radio interviews. And at the same time, I was practicing my TED talk. And so that was all really difficult. Um, But but that's just been a crazy journey since then because the TED talk was really, um, it really worked. Mm -hmm. And and ever since then, I've now had this career as a public speaker talking about introversion and extroversion in workplace and in schools and um and I'm not scared of it anymore you know and now I well before the pandemic I was giving you know probably about three talks a month I would do yeah, yeah. and um yeah and I came to like it and not to be nervous anymore and just you know focus on what I wanted to say and so that's just been a kind of crazy evolution I, I say crazy because if you had told um, the self that I was, you know, five minutes before the book was published, that some years later, I would actually make a living partly um, through speaking, I would have thought that was unthinkable. I mean, it's interesting that people, we become the person you become as you're becoming the person you need to be, which actually, You said there, um, make a living, which reminds me, um, did your, did your father get to see, I, I'm not sure if your father is still with us. Did he get to yeah, see this yeah. evolution? Does, what does he think? What does he think now when he, when, when he reminded you that you probably wouldn't make any money writing? Um, he's just thrilled about it. Yeah. He's, he's thrilled. He's, uh, yeah, I think he's pleased as punch. You know, during the time that I left the law firm and wasn't really earning, yeah, like it was, it was sort of unclear how I was going to earn my living at that point. Um, you know, he expressed a lot, a lot yeah, of nervousness yeah. at the time, but um, no, 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 he's totally thrilled now. And uh, it's really my grandfather who I actually wish could see it all. He. Yeah. had passed away by the time my book came out and oh. and all of that. But um, 
yeah, I really wish he could have seen that because that would have been his great dream. So, uh, but, but I bet he knew that. I bet he saw that in you. Yeah, somewhere, somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Eggie and Peggy. I mean, he 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 was there for the, the early early days. Okay, now a few um, a few. I don't want to say that they're easy ones, but what what story do you see for yourself next? Like, I know I know you mentioned that you're working on another book. I know things have shifted somewhat. Uh, you mentioned keynote speaking that is not a job right now, as you and I both know. Um, <laughs> what, what's the next part of the story? Yeah, well, um, I've been working on another book. It's about um, participating, the, the idea of participating joyfully in the sorrows of the world, which is mm. a, a, a Buddhist idea that I had come across decades ago and have been kind of wondering about all my life. And this book was it, it, this book is my answer to that question. What, wow. what that means. Um, and just like with quiet, I've been working on it for years and years. That seems to be my way. Um, and just as with quiet, you know, it took me a while to figure out how to write this book. I've been researching it for ages and thinking about it for ages and interviewing people and so on. Um, but it took me a while to figure out how to put it together. And now I, really have figured it out so that's exciting and mm. you know and I'm just kind of blissfully every day writing it so that's my next big project it, it should come out sometime in 2021 um, okay. and I'm also putting together a podcast that should come out that that should launch um, I'd say either late 2020 or early 2021 great around then You'll have to let us uh, be sure to let us know when that comes out so we can we can talk about it and make sure that people get to hear that as as well. What's the what's the topic for the that podcast? Um, you know, I probably can talk about it, but I think I'd rather not talk about that. <gasps> okay, don't, 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 no, yeah. don't tell about it. Don't tell about it. Um, okay, Susan, one. Well, I mean, there are so many other questions. Like I, I heard bits and pieces about your relationship with your husband. And is he, because he's an extrovert, you're an introvert. I mean, there's so many. Uh, we may have to get back together again another time soon. But <laughs> one question that I, I like to ask is, is there someone whose story inspired you, even in a small way, like it doesn't have to be a big thing, but, but something about their story, a moment on their journey that inspired you that they maybe wouldn't even know? Well, um, I mean, I talk a lot about my grandfather, but he is the first person who comes to mind when you ask that question uh, in a hundred different ways. But what I'm thinking about is that he died at the age of 94, um, and I was still working as a lawyer at the time. And he had been, he, he, he was a rabbi, and, uh, mm -hmm. and he had been working as a rabbi and giving, and he was very dedicated to what he did and to his congregation and really up until the week or two before his death, he was still hobbling to the um, synagogue and giving sermons that people would come to from all over. And I remember thinking, I, I actually remember once again, where I was 
sitting at the time. I was in my office at my law firm. And I remember thinking, gosh, when I'm 94, there's no way I would want to be doing this and, you know, Uh, this law thing. And in fact, I don't really want to be doing it right now. I'd rather be on vacation. uh, Um, And that was a kind of inspiration uh, and a sign to figure out like what, what he was doing that made it, made him so committed to his work, like his work and his life were all one big active service and active inspiration. And I thought that was really the right way to live. Do you feel that that's the way you're living now? Oh yeah, completely. I mean, I could never, I I would happily never take a vacation again. Like I really just love what I do. I mean, I do it for my family and like they're great family moments and stuff when we go skiing and the things we do, but I don't have any need to get away from the work that I do. I really love it. And I think that's how, you know, you know, I think that they're, yeah. 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 So I love that everyone listening to this is they're asking themselves that question or they're feeling that, that stirring, uh, what a beautiful gift that now they can think about your grandfather um, and also think about you. So by sharing that, now your grandfather's story has inspired a whole new group of people. So thank you for that. And thank you. Thank you so much for, for sitting down with us, for sharing your stories. And like I said, this is just, this is just the beginning, Susan. We'll, we'll be talking more. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Kendra. It was really great to be on your podcast. We'll see you soon. If you enjoyed this conversation, look up an inch or down an inch and check out all of our previous discussions. You can find those at iTunes, Spotify, Overcast, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are sold. And of course, check out the latest issue of Success Magazine by heading over to success.com slash subscribe and get more inspiring stories like this delivered right to your front door. Be sure to give us a review on Apple iTunes and you can find me at KindraHall.com or on Instagram at KindraHall. That is Kindra with an I. I can't wait to hear the stories you'll tell. Until next time. <laughs>